0: We really don't have evidence of its effectiveness.
1: Many of the masks that are used simply wouldn't give you protection. It is not just about individuals. I think that this is going to get worse before it starts to get better. It's really a a huge test
0: of our ability to cooperate.
1: We're all in this together.
0: We're all in this together.
2: Hello and welcome back to another episode of LSHTM Viral. I'm Amy Thomas. On Wednesday the 25th of March, we broadcast a live stream Q and A session with two of our experts on social media. We had so much engagement and lots of questions from the audience and it was a really broad and interesting discussion. Here it is. Hello and welcome to the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine's COVID-19 Q and A remote broadcast. I'm Amy Thomas. This is an opportunity for you to ask questions about the COVID-19 outbreak directly to our experts. We'll do our best to answer your questions as many as we can during the session, so please do get involved. First, I'm delighted to introduce Professor Heidi Larson. Heidi is an Anthropologist and Professor of Risk and Decision Science here at LSHTM, as well as Director of the Vaccine Confidence Project. Heidi has also worked previously as the Head of Global Immunisation Communication at UNICEF. Heidi, welcome, thank you for joining us. Sadly, Professor David Heyman is unable to join us due to technical difficulties. However, we have a fantastic late replacement in Jimmy Whitworth. Jimmy is a Professor of International Public Health at the London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine and was previously Head of International Activities at Wellcome Trust. Jimmy, welcome and thank you for joining us last minute. My pleasure. So before we get started on some of the questions that have come in, let's just have a really brief overview of where we are with the COVID-19 outbreak. Jimmy, do you wanna just give us an overview of where we are, how far it's spread and what we're doing to respond at the moment?
1: Yes, certainly. So this is an outbreak that started um, right at the end of December last year. So we are only two and a half months into the current outbreak. It has spread all around the world. There's over four hundred thousand cases that have been reported, and it's in every continent. It's in most countries in the world now. It started in China um, and then spread to neighbouring East Asian countries and. At the moment, due to the actions that they have taken in order to control the outbreak, the numbers of cases there have fallen very much. And in China, they are uh, at a situation where they haven't seen any new cases now for a number of days. Meanwhile, the outbreak is raging in other parts of the world, in particularly in Western Europe, Uh, but also increasingly in the United States. The measures that have been used so far include case detection and isolation and treatment of those cases, also identification of their contacts with them also being isolated, and then instituting uh, personal uh, distancing measures Uh, in the general society to be able to stop transmission as much as possible. And from what we can see, this has certainly worked in Asia, and this is now being tried in almost every country with cases
0: around the world.
2: Great. Thank you, Jimmy. And and Heidi, do you have anything to add on that and where we are right now?
0: Part of the challenge with the current strategies is that we have Um, I think South Korea has been the leader in this, but there's very limited testing in a lot of countries, including the UK, but also in the US, um, as well as a number of other countries where the access to testing is highly restricted. So you don't know where the cases are. So in that sense, what is required is a population-wide social distancing. Some are increasingly referring to this as physical distancing because the social contacts continue online, as it were. So that's been a challenge, and and countries and cultures, and frankly, political leaders have reacted very differently to how they manage this. Um, some, I mean, we saw the the world was watching Wuhan and in, in their lockdown, and that was. Uh, a highly top down, but very uh, effective. Uh, Some say a bit late, but you know, it's easy to say that in retrospect, but when you have a brand new virus and you just don't know how big it will be, we would have never imagined it would have come to what it is today you have to make decisions uh, as you get more information. So you have the Wuhan extreme lockdown, which helped the rest of us get ready as it were. Europe, which has been back and forth in different settings. Uh, Italy, or I think was the, the first to move forward with lockdown and still um, we see what's happening there. New York, uh, Pakistan, uh, Iran, um, some of the governments, too, don't want to create panic in the public, so they don't impose measures.
2: Thank you both for that outline. Um, I think that's really useful to, to just give a, a context of, of where we are. Now let's launch in with some questions that we're receiving in real time from our viewers. So the first question we have from uh, Fiona Broom. And Fiona is asking, for vaccines or treatments reaching vulnerable people in the Global South, How can the global health community ensure it reaches them? Heidi, do you want to take that one?
0: Well, one, we don't have a vaccine yet. Um, So the issue is uh, readiness for it. And in the meanwhile, the most important thing is we use the measures we have, which, uh, as we were just mentioning, include case detection to the extent that we can, social distancing restricting movements. And when we do get a vaccine, which won't be for a while, we do some preparedness and and work on getting global access, because this indeed, like the flu, frankly, but not quite as big as this, is a global issue, not just a local issue.
2: And if there are so many people that need the vaccine, how do we ensure that it gets to everybody?
0: Well, when we do get a vaccine, I think uh, typically what you do is start with priority areas. So where you know that there are nodes of outbreak, you want to circle it and you want to make sure that the populations around that are not yet affected are protected. I mean, ultimately, you'd like to do it more population-wide particularly prioritising people who are more likely for complications and mortality, like elderly, but also in settings where it's clear that there is an outbreak and the population around needs to be protected.
2: Thanks, Heidi. And Jimmy, do you have anything to add about that, about reaching vulnerable populations?
1: Yeah, what I'd like to add there is that those discussions are Already going on about making sure that there is equitable access. Um, that there, there are groups within the World Health Organization that are starting those discussions, even though we don't yet have a vaccine, but recognizing that that is going to be a big issue.
2: Great, thanks, Jimmy, and I'm going to move us on to the next question. So we've got a lot coming through. Joe Brody from Twitter is asking, how do the nose swab tests work? What is being tested? and can you be reinfected with COVID-19? So There's two questions there. Jimmy, do you want to take the lead on that one?
1: So the, the tests that are being done are um, no swabs, which are actually looking for live virus, or at least virus particles that can be identified within the upper respiratory tract infection. This is done with a uh, polymerase chain reaction test a pcr test and this identifies that you have active infection now what it doesn't do is tell you whether you have been infected in the past
2: and coming on to that second question there can you be reinfected with covid-19 this is something that's been brought up quite a lot jimmy again do you want to take a take a leap with that one
1: there have been a few isolated Examples where that has been reported that people were positive, then they were negative, then they were uh, positive again. It looks like in the great majority of cases, this doesn't happen, that people get infected once. Um, My suspicion is that those uh, discrepant test results that we get are to do with actually the sampling it's not straightforward to take a, uh, a sample from the back of the throat and make sure you catch virus every time. So I suspect it's a technical issue rather than uh, repeat infection.
2: So that leads on to some other questions that we've had about herd immunity. So does that mean if you get the virus, you are then immune to getting it again?
1: Yep, it looks like you are immune for getting it again, but for how long, we don't know yet. Uh, We need to remember that the human population has only been exposed at the maximum to this for two and a half months, and we simply don't know whether the protection that you get from a single infection might last for a year, 10 years, or for life. We simply don't know at the moment.
2: And Heidi, do you have anything to add on herd immunity at a kind of wider level?
0: Well, I think uh, herd immunity typically is used when referring to a vaccine. The wonder of vaccines is that people can get exposed to a virus without having the the virus itself. Um, and in that sense, it's it, it allows creating a herd immunity without people putting at risk of the disease or its complications. It's very different story when you're talking about a a new virus, a virus in general, a live virus, um, that's a much more risky issue if you're counting on uh, a virus creating herd immunity because in its path, it's going to make a lot of people sick and possibly die. So you don't want to rely on widespread infection for herd immunity. But you do want to benefit where, you, where it has happened naturally, but it's not something to wait around for. It has too many risks.
2: Great. Thanks for clarifying that, Heidi. And so we've had quite a few questions come in about comorbidities and how factors like dementia and diabetes play into a person's risk of of contracting COVID-19. How does that work, Jimmy? Do you want to lead on that?
1: The main comorbidities that have been identified as problem here are things like cardiovascular disease, uh, diabetes, um, obesity, and so on. And I think they work uh, largely by meaning that uh, this, is, this is somebody who already has uh, existing health problems. Their immune system probably is not that robust. Their Capacity to be able to take on additional illnesses is reduced, and so people do get overwhelmed if they have a pneumonia of of the sort that coronavirus causes. And I think that is the main reason why we are uh, seeing higher death rates in people who have these comorbidities.
2: And we've got Brian Hunt on YouTube who wants to know if we have any observations About the risk of a second wave of the virus heidi do you do you want to take a take a leap with that one?
0: Well, we absolutely have a risk of it. Uh, we just don't know. I mean it's one of the um, many things where uh, the phenomena of a brand new virus uh, has a lot of uncertainty, which is why all of these extraordinary measures are important. Mm-hmm. But when we look historically, like to the 1918 pandemic, uh, Spanish flu, it had a very serious second wave, and in some, in some cases, more fatal than the first wave. So we should not take this lightly. I mean, I think one of the concerns now is that we get through this, you know, first uh, hurdle, this first wave, and start loosening our guard, uh, and we'll have to be watching that very carefully.
2: Jimmy, and do you have anything to add on the the second wave?
1: What I'd say is we're in a situation now in in China, particularly in Hubei province, where uh, due to the control measures that have been put in place, which have been successful, they've now had uh, no cases recently. And that means that the authorities and indeed the population, of course, are very keen to uh, relax the restrictions that have have been in place but only a small proportion of the population we think has actually been infected um, and that means that the rest of the population are still vulnerable to reinfection and so that means that uh, if the virus was to get in say that Um, travel restrictions were were reduced and somebody travelled in and brought in that infection, yes, we could get a second wave. If we also look at Hong Kong, where they have been successful in um, reducing the number of cases to a very low level, they have seen recently a surge of cases too. That seems to be due to Hong Kong citizens who have returned to the country um, after Term time for the holidays and have brought the infection in with them in that way. So even in countries which have managed to control it, it coming back in through travel always will remain a risk.
2: We've spoken a little bit about vaccines, but let's talk about treatments. There's been some uh, talk about anti-malarial drugs, uh, malaria drugs, being used to treat the virus. What's the science behind that, Jimmy?
1: anti-malarial drugs particularly hydroxychloroquine are um, one of the front runners um, uh, of drugs that are being repurposed to see if they work for uh, coronavirus and there are trials going on at the moment they have not reported yet so we don't have any definitive evidence whether they work or not but in theory through their mode of action and also from experiments that have been done in test tubes, it does look as though the, these drugs may be able to work. So so we are hopeful that these anti-malarials may work. But at the moment, I'd like to stress, we do not have any definite evidence that they do.
2: Thanks, Jimmy. And, and what do we mean by treat? Does that mean that someone is then not able to spread the virus or that their symptoms are relieved? What, what does that mean?
1: Uh, there are two possibilities here one is that it might be useful as prophylaxis so you might be able to take this and stop yourself from becoming infected in the first place that would be great if that worked but we'd need quite large supplies and for people to be be taking it for a relatively long period of time Um, for treatment uh, we'd have to work out what the window of opportunity is you would probably need to give the drug pretty early on in the course of illness to have any hope of it working.
0: These kind of uncertainties with the suggestion of a treatment are pretty high risk for rumors and people assuming that it's going to work. It hasn't helped recently with some political leaders uh, suggesting it does work. But as Jimmy said, we really don't have evidence of its effectiveness and it's very important to not attempt home remedies because there have been cases who, having heard this suggestion that it would work, have tried to self-medicate with other products that happen to have chloroquine in them and becoming quite ill just from that self-medication. So I would just urge that people wait for any kind of scientific conclusion. This is where rumor management is absolutely critical in this very uncertain time with new science. And it's part of the challenge of this whole epidemic or pandemic is that there are, from understanding better the behavior of the virus to the treatments and prevention, we do know some things, which is social distancing, physical distancing works and is crucial. But uh, as for particularly in the treatment area and on early stage vaccines. We're not there yet. And uh, we really need to urge publics to stick with what we know and look forward to the scientific results moving forward.
2: Thank you, Heidi. That's a really nice perspective there. So I'm going to keep going with the questions. We've got lots lots coming through. We've had some more about testing from Gerard. Greg Smith is asking, what is the sensitivity and specificity of the best PCR tests and antibody tests and their costs? So, Jimmy, we spoke about PCR tests earlier. How how accurate are they?
1: They're highly accurate. Um, the, the one caveat with them is that they identify um, fragments of uh, RNA from the the virus itself so what you know is that there is presence of virus you don't know that it's active uh, reproducing virus that is is present there but apart from that it is um, uh, highly reliable both sensitive and specific in terms of the antibody test i haven't seen any data yet on Uh, how accurate this is. I know that there's more than 20 different um, serology tests that have have been developed, and it's not clear at the moment which one is the front runner, and I think different countries are probably going to choose different ones. So, So that is a bit of an uncertainty at the moment. But as far as the PCR is concerned, as long as the test is actually done properly, and by technically proficient people, it will be highly sensitive and highly specific.
2: Great, thank you for that, Jimmy. And we've had a question from um, Kiara on YouTube, who is a nurse, and she's confused about the changing guidelines around PPE, so that's the protective equipment that you need to wear. Why would it be changing daily? Heidi, do you, do you wanna answer that one?
0: We're learning new things every day. And also in terms of PPE options, the protective gear options, uh, like masks and visors and, uh, and other universal precautions, frankly, for some, in some hospital work, we're learning. And so I think that it shouldn't be seen as, oh, we had it wrong before. The, the previous recommendations were based on what evidence we did have for what works, as well as what's available. On the one hand, we're learning more about what's working. On the other hand, there are more and more opportunities coming up, more products coming up. And as they become available, that also influences what the guidance is.
2: And so we've got a question from Sherwan, and they want to know why we're seeing such a big number of cases in Europe and not in Africa, or I suppose not in Africa yet, is the question.
1: I think part of this is due to human travel and travel movements and trade. Um, And uh, while there are fairly strong links with Africa, uh, with with China for for trade, they're even stronger for uh, Europe. And so I think it's not that surprising that it came to Europe first. I think this is going to be seen all around the world. We are starting to see cases reported in a large number of African countries now. So we do believe that it is there and that it is being recognized and that the the testing is in place. My feeling is that that will become one of the the main hotspots in the weeks and months to come. Um, One positive thing I'd say there is that African populations tend to be relatively young compared to those in either China and most certainly compared to Europe. And we do know from the information that we have that younger people tend to be relatively well spared from uh, the effects of this virus. So there's uh, positive news on that front. On the other side, though, these are populations in which there are high levels of comorbidities with conditions such as hiv or tuberculosis and malaria and at the moment we really don't have any information about whether they will make the clinical course uh, worse or they simply won't have any effect
2: thank you jimmy And, and heidi do you want to add your perspective from sort of an anthropology view about how things might pan out in africa
0: Jimmy makes uh, very important points about the demographics of Africa, but also they actually had been quite proactive in trying to get up networks of testing through the Pasteur Institute, through Africa CDC, through the Across Africa WHO. But the testing, in some ways, they were more proactive about getting testing up and running. One of the big issues is the health system Uh, When people do start getting sick, that's much weaker. And ironically, I mean, I think some of the early uh, concerns about Africa were because there's such a huge number of uh, Chinese traveling back and forth, many uh, projects going on, a lot of economic exchange, commerce in building, and back and forth both ways which was an early anxiety about the what seemed to be an obvious next place um in fact the first case in africa was an italian in nigeria and then there was uh, it was another one from another part of europe so in fact as as jimmy said the tra- the transmission has actually ironically come from europe even though the early concerns were particularly because of china but I still think it needs vigilance and it will spread. I've heard about a number of cases in South Africa. I know they've called for, I don't know if it's a full lockdown, but there there are measures coming in place, but it will be an issue how big and how much uh, support it will need. Uh, but these are times which tests any weaknesses in your health system. Uh, that will be a real challenge.
2: Thank you so much, Heidi. And um, that issue of vigilance leads on to the next question that's coming in from Alejandro. How are the WHO engaging with scientific communities to create readiness so that advances can be rapidly communicated to communities across the world? So I guess asking how are we communicating the, the science that comes out of these amazing institutions? How are we making sure that that information gets to the people that need it? Yes, that's a process
0: happening at a lot of levels. WHO certainly has a number of mechanisms where it's convening, creating protocols, both for social science as well as for basic science. Companies are collaborating in, in really important ways to make sure that they're complementing each other's efforts in this, in this great effort. Universities also, research institutes, w h o is certainly one part of this, but not the only uh, mechanism where people are trying to share what we're learning um I think that that is uh everybody sees that as a as a concern, but again, it's also knowing when it's ready to share and at least to keep people posted on what's in the pipeline w h o has been i would say after a delayed acknowledgement of the state of the pandemic, I think they are being quite proactive now at multiple levels with daily situation updates online as well as a lot on their their website, but also through their regional and country presence.
2: Thanks for that, Heidi. Uh, So we've got a question from Claire Gills on YouTube who wants to ask about children. Again, this is something which has been brought up quite a lot in the past. Do we know why they're showing less vulnerability at this stage? Jimmy, do you want to take that one?
1: There seem to be two factors involved here. One is that children seem to get exposed to this less, but they also seem to get uh, less sick from it if they do get infected. The first is probably something to do with social mixing and uh, the fact that that doesn't happen randomly And it may be, certainly in China, that there was less exposure that that children came up against. In terms of them uh, doing relatively well with this, it it seems that uh, with this particular virus, there is a a consistent age gradient, and that the younger you are, the uh, better you are able to 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 fight this off and that seems to go down to very young ages indeed it's a bit of incomplete picture at the moment and again this is because this is an unfamiliar virus to us that we've not seen before but that's what the uh, evidence seems to show so far.
2: And we've got lots of questions coming in about the actual transmission of COVID-19 Do we know if it's actually airborne and can it linger in dust?
1: There uh, have been some studies which have been done and reported uh, very recently that are looking at this. Um, It looks as though the main mode of transmission is through droplet spread or onto contaminated surfaces, which people then touch and then uh, they put their uh hands to their their mouths or their eyes and get infected that way that seems to be the main way in which it spreads and there's evidence suggesting that um from uh, contaminated surfaces the virus can can survive on some forms of contaminated surface for uh several days actually so that this whole question about uh cleaning surfaces Um, using hand gel or washing your hands frequently is really, really important to stop uh, yourself from, from getting infected. But these studies are also showing that in some circumstances, there can be aerosol spread. In other words, that is that the virus particles get into the air and they will float about there and they will Um, be infectious if you happen to inhale them. Now, this is particularly important for healthcare workers who are getting very close to patients and often doing medical procedures which might create aerosols. And I think this relates back to one of the earlier questions where WHO and people like the UK Department of Health have changed their guidelines for, for healthcare workers to to protect them from getting infected through uh, aerosol transmission for the general public i think that's less of an issue and the physical distancing which is being recommended as well as the hand washing and so on will be equally effective against um, aerosol as it will against droplet and surface spread
2: so just to sort of clarify a point which has just come in related to that, um, Arif Jamal asks, uh, thinks there are mixed messages about the efficacy of public use of face masks. Do you recommend their use? If not, why not? I'm a, I'm a
1: sceptic when it, it comes to, to face masks. I think that uh, the evidence that they work in terms of protecting you from getting infected are very limited Um, many of the masks that are used uh, simply wouldn't give you protection when you see people with them on they're not applied properly and so they're not going to be effective anyway people take them down um, they don't wear them the whole time so I think the chance that they're actually going to do any any good is very limited actually People who have got a cough or are infected in some way, if they were to wear a mask, that would protect people. But since we're asking such people to be self-isolating anyway, I hope that that's not going to be um, a a practical situation that uh, exists.
2: And Heidi, do you have anything to add on the kind of social um, reasons about miscommunication around face masks and things like that? One of the
0: challenges, particularly in the early uh, wave, and when people started to get quite concerned about it, there was hoarding of masks and that was actually quite a problem because the people who did need it, the ones who were as Jimmy said trying to protect uh, trying to prevent their themselves spreading to other people or who are working like in hospital settings or in very close quarters. Um, where where they needed it, they weren't available because people in the public were hoarding them when they were, you know, less needing them. So I think there is a consciousness. And and I think that one thing about this pandemic is that it is not just about individuals. It is absolutely about everybody cooperating. It's really a a huge test of our ability to cooperate, um, look at the kind of Hoarding behavior you know in supermarkets, I think that the mask situation also was one that it's not just about whether whether it works, it's you know take these precautions and and use these products and as you need them, but uh, remember that a lot of people may need it and some may need it more than you and it may be far more important.
2: Great. Thank you for that, Heidi, uh, that nice insight. And we've, we've had a question in somewhat related to that from, from Bell Welton, asking about the role of blame and stigma influencing the outbreak. Heidi, do you want to add some thoughts on that?
0: That's happening at the level of leaders. I mean, leaders of countries, presidents, prime ministers, are blaming other people for the, you know, the issue, and that's not productive. But you also have at a a very micro um community level more the stigma some blame also people initially, particularly initially when it was so clearly uh a china phenomena um and there was a lot of stigmatization and discrimination around chinese some and some not just. Exclusion, but really harassment, which even in diaspora situations, that's a real problem. The the landscape has changed considerably now. So actually, because it's everywhere, in a way, it, it undermines any kind of discrimination because it's not one person any more than another anymore. In fact, the Chinese are more vulnerable to getting reinfected by Europeans So I think the tide has turned a bit with that. I do think that, you know, wearing a mask in a way is something that flags that maybe you're sick. So we have to make sure that people with masks who are trying to protect others are not stigmatized or harassed. So I think that's changing, but I think that is an issue. And we need to be proactive to making sure that this is a time of cooperation and respect of others because we're all in this together.
2: Thank you, Heidi. That's some really nice thoughts on that. And um, we've had a question come in about warmer weather. Again, this is something that's been brought up quite a lot. We perhaps don't know yet how COVID-19 translates in different weathers. But, Jimmy, do you want to give us any insight on how, how transmission might be affected in different climates?
1: Again, this is an unfamiliar virus, so we don't know really anything about it in that regard. Um, If we extrapolate from other respiratory viruses, they do tend to have a seasonality and they do tend to be worse in cold winter months, um, whether that's in the northern hemisphere or the southern hemisphere, whereas in the tropics, they do tend to, to circulate all the year round so you do see different patterns in different places if there is seasonality with this virus then a question becomes of how much is it does it just go down a bit in the summer and up a bit in the winter or does it actually disappear for a while in the in the summer and then come back again we don't know but if for example we look at the uh, epidemic in australia where it is uh, still their summer moving towards their autumn there are a lot of cases and they're having an acceleration of an epidemic there so i take from that that warm weather is not going to be uh, highly protective for us
2: thanks for clarifying that jimmy i'm sure there's a lot of out there who are interested in that and we're coming to the end of the session now so um I'm gonna ask you both for some final of takeaway thoughts before I before I thank everyone. Heidi, do you wanna give some final thoughts for our viewers?
0: Yeah, I mean I think the if I the main thoughts I, I have are to really um keep looking for information and, and being social online, but I would urge people to really be careful about believing what they read until it has some basis to it. There are a lot of things circulating that are not true or are possibilities, but we have to be careful about. So please read them with caution. WHO, CDC, National Health Institutes, look at institutional sites that have um, confirmed scientific evidence or not, because some of these suggestions online uh, that are circulating can be harmful. The other thing is just to remember, as I was mentioning around the, mas- the masks, um, it, this is really a time where we need everybody to be together in this. And we do a lot of social media monitoring. We have a, an initiative at uh, the school where at London School of Hygiene and Tropical Medicine, that's a global monitoring initiative of social media everywhere in the world. And aside from the, the misinformation, um, and some of the stigma issues. There is an incredible wealth of creative, innovative ways that people are cooperating and ways that they're making the, the most of trying to to help in this regard. So I think let's not forget that part of this response.
2: Thank you so much, Heidi. That's some really nice thoughts for our viewers to to end on. And, and Jimmy, what would you say as a kind of take home message?
1: Well, I'd like to reiterate what uh, Heidi is saying there about we're all in this together and that we do need to cooperate. We do need to listen and follow the advice that we're being given about uh, physical distancing. This is so important if we're going to protect ourselves, but also our families, our loved ones and our neighbours and friends. So it's really important that we uh, do follow those messages um i think that this is going to get worse uh, before it starts to get better um the the t- type of measures that have been put in place take uh Two weeks or so before they start to have any effect. And the better that we can imply, uh, we can comply with those, then the sooner we will get out of this and get towards a situation where we can relax some of these really tight controls.
2: Some really powerful messages there from Jimmy and from Heidi. Thank you so much for tuning in and asking your questions. It's been a really good, broad discussion. And thank you so much to Jimmy and Heidi for giving up their time in this very, very busy period to talk to us today on the live stream. And I know some of you have been tuning in from the COVID-19 free online course that we're offering at LSHTM. If any of you are interested in going and learning about COVID-19, you can find more information on our website, lshtm.ac.uk forward slash coronavirus. And you can also find all of the other recent work that we're doing on COVID-19. So do head there and find out more. Make sure that you subscribe to our podcast, LSHTM Viral, to keep up to date with the latest science behind the outbreak and hear from our other experts on the topic. Thank you to WPP Health Practice for helping us stream the session. Thank you again for tuning in, and we'll see you next time. Goodbye.